And before I start speaking, if anybody at the back could just get me a glass of water. Um, if I don't, I don't have one, I'll probably be uh, coughing and coughing. That'd be lovely. Um, we put the slide up for the... the uh, sorry. Two weeks ago when I was last here, I warned you I had 17 slides, didn't I, I think? <laughs> and someone came to me very kindly after the service and encouraged me and said, yeah, you did have 17 slides, but that was actually very helpful. So it's good. And turn, oh, sorry. I now have to apologize to the camera because apparently whenever I walk this way, I disappear. And maybe I have to put a chair here. So I apologize to anybody who's, uh, to, to, who's out there. And I've totally lost my, my track of thought there. Um, I had 17 slides. And you'll be glad to know today I have one. I'm going to disappear from the camera while I get my water. I appreciate that. Thank you. <clears throat> okay. So, um, as I said this morning, first thing, you know, we're looking at encouragement. And it's something that's very much present in, the, this, early, in this letter of, uh, second letter to, of Paul's to Timothy. Uh, Timothy, he describes as his beloved co-worker. He also describes him as his son in the faith. Um, he's, uh... But Paul, by the time he got around to writing this second letter, Paul's own personal situation was pretty dire, actually. It is most likely that he was um, in Rome, probably in chains, and probably facing an almost certain death. A little bit later in the same letter, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. He knows the end is nigh. All right? And yet he is, um, and he's more or less on his own. I think the other thing we can see a bit later in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11 is that most of the associates in Paul's ministry have all gone. For whatever reason, they've disbanded and they've pulled away and they've scattered. In fact, he, he says in his letter that only Luke is with him. Okay, so he's, you know, not exactly totally alone, but he's pretty much alone and he's in a very difficult place. But I think it's wonderful he can write this letter. He's not sitting writing a letter, oh, please get me out of here. You know, I don't want to be here. I don't like it, you know. Um, but he's writing a letter to Timothy and he's saying, I want to encourage you. You know, so sometimes, you know, it's quite easy to encourage someone when we are, you know, things are good, okay. Yeah. Have a bit of my good cheer. That's okay. All right. It's a lot harder to encourage someone when, frankly, life is tough and it's dark and it's hard. And, frankly, all we want to do is bemoan our own situation. And you know how Paul does. He, from this dark, deep, dark place, from this situation where he knows sooner or later he's going to probably be, face the lions or whatever his final death was, uh, he wants to encourage. He wants to encourage. Because he knows by doing so, he's continuing his work of proclaiming the gospel. Even though he's in chains and maybe he can't get out to do it now himself, he knows that he can encourage someone else to do it. You know, nothing, you know the gospel is still moving forwards, as it were. Um, so we need to remember that. Just remember the setting and this man's writing from. Now, when we encourage somebody, we give someone hope. We try and build up their confidence. And literally, we, we try and give them courage, as it were, insert courage, encourage. We're trying to put in, uh, not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of, 
or bravery, I suppose, is another way of looking at it. And it's trying to support someone in a way that not only inspires confidence in them, but renews the person to press on in the work of their undertaking. It's not just um, inspiring confidence, but it's actually getting them to press on as well. When we try and encourage someone, we're seeking to both inspire them and motivate them for gospel ministry to move on. So it's more than just being kind. Now, kind words have their place. It's nice, you know, frankly, for someone to come up and say kind words. That's very thoughtful and, you know, and biblical as well. All right? But it's more than just kindness. Um, it is very much as a, a call to action. If we're going to encourage someone, we need to do it thoughtfully and prayerfully. And so we're not just being kind to them, we're trying to get them to continue to press on as well. It's very much, uh, when we encourage someone, we should obviously do it also with humility. But it's very much an expression of God's grace in the church. And I think when we encourage someone from a biblical Christian point of view, it should be spirit-led. Go talk to this person. Go encourage Lynn. Go, you know, it should be spirit-led and spirit-filled. So what we're sharing isn't just of us. It isn't just our good, kind intentions. It's more than that. Paul, actually, in uh, Romans 12, includes encouragement as one of the gifts of the Spirit, really. You'll see that in 12, verse 8. And you also would have, may have noticed in the opening verses of the call to worship this morning, from a bit later in 2 Timothy, um, where Paul's saying, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage, and do so with great patience and careful instruction. So I think we all need to be encouraged. A church that's had some difficult history needs to be encouraged. All right? Yeah, where we have difficult personal history, we need to be encouraged. And they'll say it's about, okay, that's fine, but now what's next? What's coming next? Life moves on. Hebrews 3, verse 13. Encourage one another daily. It's a really important gift of grace in the church. We mustn't underestimate that. And I personally, I feel if, if the church doesn't encourage one another, it just becomes downhearted, it just becomes downtrodden. People just go despondent. You know, someone walking down the street sees you coming in and you're discouraged. Your face is, you know, and they wonder what you're doing. You know, what's this all about? We need to be a church of encouragement, even when we might be in a place where we feel pretty low ourselves. And it's not just verbal, is it, encouragement? It's not just saying something that you think spirit-inspired to someone. You know, we can be inspired by the spirit to be encouraged someone in a way that the person will never know we're even in the loop. If we do something, or we allow something to happen, but it, we know we'll be an encouragement, but we are invisible. That's a great way of doing it. You know, because frankly, we should be out of the picture in many ways. So it's a lovely way. So remember, it's not just about... Uh, our words, you know, if we think imaginatively, we can be very creative when we think about encouragement. But the bottom line is that, you know, every church needs encouragers. And uh, we need to remember that. Paul compared, I think, this attitude of encouragement. He says in verse 6, he says, he says, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God which is in you. And I think if we're encouragers in a biblical sense, we seek to do this for one another. 
we seek to recognize something of God, or something of the Spirit enabling and equipping within a person that might be quite hard to see sometimes, but then we seek to encourage it, we seek to fan into flame the gift we perceive in that person. And people, the church is equipped with many gifts, so there's different ways we can look at this. Paul recognized in Timothy the gift of evangelism, the gift of evangelism, and broadened that. He was, Timothy was much more than just evangelist. He was a tremendous pastor as well, as you can read from the letters. But he obviously saw these gifts, these gospel ministry gifts in Timothy, and from that prison cell, he wants to fan the flame and let them burn. Now, in the reading that Alan brought us just now, uh, there's quite a number of different ways that Paul gets on and does this, but I'm going to have to focus on just one, and that's what the slide is, is on. So verses... Well, I'm going to go verses 6 to 8. I'm just going to reread them for a minute. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. All right, so I'm encouraging you. Fan that into flame, the gift of God which is in you through the laying of my hands. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-control, or self-discipline in some translations. So he goes on, he says, don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of me as a prisoner, he says. But join with me. Join with me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done or who we are, but because of his own purpose and grace. And that grace was given to us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. But it's now been revealed through the appearance of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul just, in these verses, just reminds Timothy, encourages Timothy, that God has given him a spirit, but it's not a spirit of fear, it's not a spirit of timidity, it's not a a fear of being shy and coy about their faith. It is a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. And I'm just going to now pick on those three and just try and draw a little bit out there. Now, the first thing is the spirit of power. I don't know about you, if I feel powerless in a situation, then my first reaction is to feel fearful, to feel rather timid. You know, I feel powerless. What can I do about it? Uh, Maybe even cowardly. You know, we'd rather run away from something. But the Christian courage, our courage is God-given. It's not like, as it were, um, something we have. It's God-given. And God is the greatest encourager. The greatest encourager. I mean, like any good parent, he encourages his children, he encourages us, and he provides a seal of his faithfulness and his presence with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to know that we're, he's with us in sunshine or rainfall or whatever the ups and downs are. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 21. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and he set his seal of ownership upon us, putting his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Guaranteeing what is to come. And so with our consent, God places his spirit in our lives through a wonderful anointing. One we receive so simply through our acceptance by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And having received that anointing faith, 
We stand on that ground. That's the ground we stand on, not anywhere else. We stand on that ground. And we are encouraged by his spirit to become his co-workers. It's only when we take a firm faith, a firm, sorry, a firm stand of faith in God's assurance that he really is with us. Okay, in a way that is just wonderful, it's mysterious, and we certainly don't understand it. But God says, I'm here, so God is here. All right? It's only there, if we recognize that and take that, that we find an encouragement which will inspire us to act courageously for his glory. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Being personally assured of God's faithful presence is as the bedrock of any subsequent gospel witness. If we don't recognize and accept this wonderful gospel truth and live in its light, we will only be left with our very limited personal worldly resources which are quite unfit for building the kingdom. Paul seeks to encourage Timothy. He reminds him in these verses that there need be no place for timidity, for fear, in his gospel witness. He can be bold. He can be courageous. He reminded him of both God's anointing in one point in time, but then of his continued faithful presence. He reminds him that it's only the Holy Spirit who can really enable his gospel ministry. It is only the Holy Spirit who can really enable ours. We might try and do it on our own strength from time to time, and we, most of us have tried that. But at the end of the day, we fail. We come up empty-handed. We come up fruitless. Let's remember that Jesus promised the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might be equipped for gospel witness and service. Acts 1 verse 8, he said to his disciples, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. I think we sometimes find it easier to trust Jesus for our salvation than we do to trust him for the provision of his constant presence as we actually seek to proclaim the gospel. But I just want to be absolutely clear when thinking about this point of God's power, the spirit of power. It is futile for us to try and serve God without the Holy Spirit. We might be the most talented person, we might be the most trained person. We might be the most experienced person. We might be all three. But nothing, nothing can take place of the power and the person of the Spirit. It is only with his encouragement, with his presence, that we will find the courage to press on. But then thinking a bit about this, power, this other second one, which is the Spirit of love, so Paul says the Holy Spirit is not only a spirit of power, but also a spirit of love. He, he shows us the divine love of God. He reveals Christ to us. He reveals the Father to us as well. That's both for us individually. It is also for us corporately, together. 
But of course, it's also for the whole of humankind, isn't it? It starts maybe in our own hearts, but obviously it comes through the community of faith and out into the world. The consuming fire for mission, as it were, for going out, for outreach, for whatever word you want to use, no one likes evangelism, do they? Is God's love. It's God's love acting in us and through us into the world. And if we don't recognise that love, again, the fuel tank's empty. We've got nothing to run on. The car won't run. Romans 5, verse 5, Paul says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So through the Spirit, God pours out his love into our hearts, that through our daily engagement in the world, it might overflow from us and into the lives of others, believers and non-believers alike. God shows us his wonderful love, firstly, to assure us, to make us confident, but also that it might be embodied and flow out from us and through us. There's a wonderful verse, again in Romans 8, verse 15. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you again a slave to fear, but you receive the spirit of the sonship, of daughtership, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. I think it's as we realise who we are now in Christ that we find the foundation for a naturally authentic Christian witness. Not something that's forced, not something that we do because someone keeps telling us we ought to do it, but something that just is naturally there and naturally seems to come out of us as well. If we doubt our identity in Christ, we'll always find it hard to tell the story because we're not standing in the right place. Personally, I think that authentic, natural Christian witness, which is so needed in our world, we don't need the mechanised types, or or types that worked, frankly, 50, 60 years ago or longer. They don't necessarily work today. People want to deal with people. They want to hear where you are. They want to hear where your faith takes you. And don't paint it as a beautiful picture. Paint it as a real picture, an honest picture. And the Lord uses that. The Lord will work through that. But I do believe Christian witness is always love-led. It's not a... I wouldn't say it's not a duty, although in one sense it's a duty for every Christian, but I hope you get my point. It is motivated, it is fueled by the love that we personally have received in Christ. And it's only in the light of our personal realisation of being in Christ that I think that gospel truth is most effectively shared. As Christians, we are called to speak the truth with love. And that love, frankly, isn't a worldly love. We, we might substitute a selfish love. It is the agape love of God. It's the self-giving, the sacrificial love of God. That's the, that's the, that's the love we speak in. So there's no hole, there's no catches. You know, sometimes people say, they, you say something and they think you're, try, you're trying to catch them. You're not trying to catch them. You're trying to show them God's love. Yeah, there's, no, there's no catch. It is not a selfish love. It is a selfless love of God. So I think as Christians, we can be encouraged 
we can be inspired and motivated to share the gospel because of the love we have received, the love we, we celebrate through this simple communion table. It is that love that actually motivates us and inspires us to share in ways that are appropriate for where we find ourselves. A witness that is more love-led than word-led. Let our words follow our love and let our love be in Christ. Don't, we very easily, I know I do all the time, lead with our words. But if my words aren't, don't have that love, then frankly they're just going to be empty, I think, and fruitless. So our witness is based, it's not a timid witness, it is based, one based on the confident presence of God, the power of God, and the love of God for us and through us. But then it comes to the last one, and you might think this one's a little bit out of, out of color. We've got to talk about power and presence and, and the love of God. Uh, but the last one is the spirit of self-control. You know, why does uh, Paul point this out to Timothy? Um, <clears throat> well, self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit. It's uh, in Galatians uh, 5, and as one of the fruits of the spirit, just as love is on that list, so self-control is on that list. Now, so you might be wondering, what does self-control have to do with an effective ministry of the gospel, with our witness? Don't we just need the Spirit? Well, yes, we do need the Spirit. But if we want to lean on the Spirit, we also need, see, need to remember these words of Peter, 1, chapter 1, verse 15. Just as you who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that word, uh, self-control, is related to other words, sober or sobriety, which we often find elsewhere, actually, in Paul's pastoral letters. Self-discipline is another common term. It describes a person who is sort of sensibly minded and balanced and seeks to live their life so that in all aspects it, they seek to honour God. Now, Timothy didn't need any new spiritual ingredients in his life. What he needed according to Paul, was to stir up what he already had, to stir into flame the gift of God within him. But James, in his letter, he says, he reminds us that when we seek to come closer to God, when we stir up the Spirit, um, God also comes closer to us. And when that happens, we become much more aware, don't we, of the presence of things in our lives which are not God-honouring. Now, although the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us, as it were, when we fail, that's John 14, 16, he doesn't, he doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, he doesn't tend to fill us and empower us and use us if we neglect our spiritual lives. We need to remember the scriptures that remind us in Ephesians that we can grieve the Spirit. And in Thessalonians, that we can quench the Spirit. So our behaviour is relevant. If our lives, whether in private, public or private, do not seek to honour God. Our personal self-control is an important aspect, therefore, if we want to think about a spirit-filled gospel witness, both individually and corporately as a church. It is relevant how we behave to one another, how we behave in private as well. If our witness is not spirit-filled, spirit-led, then ultimately it becomes fruitless. It only ever will be well-meant, 
but empty words. And only that spirit can equip any gospel ministry for fruitfulness. So it's always a good thing to do from time to time to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, and this is a question you can ask yourself as, as an individual, but also as a, as, as a church. Yeah. You know, in what ways are we getting in God's way? So like Timothy, I hope we've been reminded this morning that there is much that we can be encouraged about. All right. Much. The gift of the Spirit. God's presence. God's power. God's wonderful selfless love. The God who sees us. Sees us perfectly. And yet still somehow loves us. There is much that should seek to encourage us to press on with our gospel witness. But also, hopefully, to seek to encourage us to live God-honouring lives as well. God has not left us as orphans. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's adopted us himself. And we've been adopted into a growing family, a worldwide family, where every day new souls come into its doors. But here in Milford, here in this place, we need to see ourselves as part of that worldwide family. And we need to take up our role within that and continue to play our part in local witness and service. Encouraged, empowered, and fueled by the love of God rather than any sense of religious obligation or duty. So I hope you just read these words for yourself and you can take encouragement from them. And be encouraged. But having been encouraged, get out of here. Go. Go. Go tell someone about the love of God and what God's done in your life as well. But tell it with love. And let God be God. Closing verses, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loves us, and by his grace has given us eternal encouragement. Eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen. We're going to remain seated before communion.